All right, good evening. Glad to be back with you on this Wednesday evening studying uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be uh, jumping into chapter 4 this evening in Ephesians. And again, we've been going through this book really, pretty much verse by verse and uh, bringing out some of the points uh, that Paul would want us to know, uh, especially uh, what he was uh, emphasizing for the church there uh, in Ephesus. You know, and we've also, you know, we've kind of talked about the whole um, outline of the book of Ephesians, how, you know, it's pretty well outlined where the first three chapters, uh, Paul is specifically uh, dealing with the church. And as we jump into chapter four, five and six, we're going to see more of uh, the doctrinal side of things, the things that he is trying to teach them, that, how to live as a Christian, how he wants them uh, to act. As, as this uh, young church there in Ephesus. And so, again, uh, I'm glad to be able to um, study with, this, with you uh, this evening in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, you know, God desires uh, throughout Scripture, uh, we see that he has a desire for us to be unified as a people. You know, that's pretty much set forth throughout Scripture. We can look in the Old Testament and see passages like Psalm 133, uh, where he says it's, you know, it's good and it's pleasant for brothers to dwell together in unity. Uh, and, and in the New Testament, you know, the, probably the biggest um, thing that comes to my mind is John chapter 17, uh, when Jesus is praying and he, and he says in verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who uh, believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Right? And so, uh, you know, Jesus prayed for unity. He wanted unity between his believers. And, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is another place that we see um, Paul stressing unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. You remember when studying, uh, if you've studied 1 Corinthians, you know that this is um, a, a church that had a lot of problems. And this was the first thing that Paul uh, sort of calls them out on is this uh, lack of division that they're having. And he says that, you know, you guys need to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Uh, just another way of saying there needs to be unity between uh, this congregation, uh, the same mind. You know, they, they need to understand um, what it means and, they, and the same judgment. They need to be able to uh, correctly apply that. And so the fact that unity is desirable you know, it cannot be denied. Uh, you know, again, we see it throughout uh, the scriptures. Uh, but what is needed, however, is a plan describing how such can be obtained. Right? We can go around saying we need to be unified. We need to be, you know, we need unity. But uh, there really needs to be a plan in place. And that's what Paul is going to uh, tell the Ephesians here in chapter 4. You know, unity is not simply... Um, Saying, you know, well, let's just agree to disagree. You've ever heard that? People say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. Well, th that is not true unity. Um, 
you know, we, instead, the route of unity uh, is focusing on matters of primary importance. You know, we got we to gotta be able to distinguish those things that are, uh, you know, eternal in weight versus those things that are opinions of man. And again, if we seek unity like Paul, then we're going to place our emphasis on Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, um, as, you know, as Paul says elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we need to walk in the same rule, be of the same mind. Um, again, be of the same mind and judgment. And so Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16, really is probably one of the most impactful um, places in Scripture where we can read about unity. Uh, it's gonna, it'll be interesting as we go through this. You'll, you'll notice in the first three verses that he's going to emphasize the individual's responsibility. And then verses 4 through 6, he's going to tell us those truths that really, uh, you know, we need to believe in as fellow uh, believers. And then in verses 7 through 20, he's going to tell us how Jesus equipped us uh, for this pursuit. And so the question really is not... Um, is unity even possible? But instead, you know, are we willing, or is each one of us willing to do what we can to secure unity between God's people? Okay, is unity possible? Well, are we willing to do, are we willing to work for it? And Paul's going to let us know that, um, that this is something that we have to work for. Uh, if we want to see a true unity, and then he'll he'll even tell us the results of this towards the end of this section. You know, no longer are we going to be tossed to and fro like children, carried by every wind or doctrine. He says, but ultimately, it's going true unity is going to cause the body to grow, as we edify each other in love and such. And so, uh, let's just jump right in here this evening in Ephesians chapter four. Let's look at the first. Uh, six verses, as Paul writes here, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in, and in all. So have you ever joined, you know, like a membership or, you know, you signed up for a service or something like that and you get like this, you know, this big long contract they give you and, you know, it'll start off with number one and they'll tell you, you know, as, uh, as, as a member here, you can do this or this or this. You know, you got all these instructions all the way down on this contract. Um, that's not how Paul is starting this letter. He's not saying, okay, for us to be unified, you know, we need to believe in this and this and this. But instead, he's focusing on the believer, the individual, and, and what they need to do in order to obtain unity. Uh, again, look at verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. See, uh, unity will never truly exist if our lives uh, don't match our beliefs. 
Um, and so he says that, you know, I implore you, right? Christianity is more than an academic pursuit, right? It's more than coming here and learning facts, but it's, uh, it's, it's about change. It's about um, changing our lives. And he is, Paul is saying, I am imploring you, uh, basically saying, you know, I really need you to do this. I need you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What is this calling? What could this calling be? Okay, yeah, I've heard a couple of answers. We're called out of this world where we're called by the gospel. Um, Second Thessalonians, uh, Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 gives us a really good definition of, uh, of, of being called. Uh, he says, again, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he says that, uh, you know, we are called through that gospel message. And, and then he, he says towards the end that you may gain the glory. So it's a conditional thing. The gospel call is conditional. Um, it, it, it goes out to everyone, but it's up to us to either accept it or to not accept it. You know, it's, it's like a, a uh, you know, a phone call. You get a phone call. You can either choose to accept it or you can choose not to accept it. Yesterday, uh, starting at 6.30 in the morning, I got a phone call um, four times from the same number. Uh, the first time it rang at 6.30 in the morning, I chose not to accept it. You know, I was just waking up at that time. Yeah. Uh, then they called back five minutes later and they asked for Billy. I told them I wasn't Billy. And so uh, she, uh, she hung up the phone and but I guess she didn't believe me because about 1 o'clock she called again. Uh, I missed that phone call. But then around 1.30 uh, she called back and I answered, hello, this is Michael. And the phone quickly uh, hung up. And so I guess at that time she finally uh, believed uh, that I was who I was. And that this wasn't Billy's phone number. Uh, whoever Billy might have been. But, you know, just like... Um, just like answering the phone, we can choose to accept it or not to accept it. The gospel call is something, you know, that uh, we have to either choose to accept or choose not to accept. And so, again, Paul is imploring them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And, and you know, throughout the Bible, um, you know, Paul, Paul especially tells us or he uses, you know, this verb to walk. And really, you know, that's just a... Uh, a nice analogy for us uh, to understand, you know, that our lives as Christians are our walks. You know, some of us are at the beginning of our walk. Some of us are in the middle of our walk. Some of us are towards the end of our walk. You know, some people walk slowly through life and they stumble. And there are those who, you know, might speed walk through life. And so, you know, it's just an analogy of, you know, how we are to live our lives or how we are living our lives. And again, Paul says, that he is imploring us to um, live in a manner, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, of what we were called by. And uh, so, then, so then when we jump into verse 2, now he is giving us the qualities 
needed in order uh, to be individuals who are seeking unity. Again, in verse 2, he says, with all humility, or maybe he says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, or bearing with one another in love. Um, you know, really, uh, that, that first phrase he tells us, uh, with all uh, lowliness or humility, you know, that's, that's our um, responsibility. Uh, that, that's how we need to uh, be, uh, as, as Paul describes us here in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Um, that's my attitude. You know, that I need to be humble. I need to be lowly if I am seeking unity. Because really, what, what is the opposite of being humble? Boastful, being prideful, arrogant, yes. Yes, and so, I mean, arrogance, uh, boasting, pride, that is that is the enemy of unity, right? Um, people who are, who are arrogant and boastful and prideful, they want things their way, and they don't consider other, the other individuals. And so, um, and so Paul first says, with all humility, so that's, that's my uh, reaction, or that's my attitude. And then he says also, this is how you need to treat other people. He says, with, with gentleness, with patience, uh, with bearing with one another. Again, th- that is our attitude um, that we want to have in order to have a true uh, unity in this life with, with uh, other believers. Again, the individual who always has to have his or her way, they're going to find it hard to have uh, unity um, with within uh, the church. Uh, and this doesn't mean that the ones who are seeking unity have to compromise or sacrifice the truth for union uh, with, with those who are, are, are more prideful or boastful. Uh, but it means there, means there, there needs to be patience. Right? There, there needs to be teaching. We can think of in Acts chapter 18 when uh, Apollos, remember Apollos, he was Elegant. He was an elegant speaker. He was, he was mighty in the scriptures. And he came to Ephesus and he was preaching in the synagogues to the people and he was teaching them about a God. And, uh, you know, um, but at that time, he had only known the baptism of John, right? John the Baptist. He, he didn't know anything about the, the baptism of the Great Commission, which was now in effect. And we're told that uh, this husband and wife, Aquila and Pris- Priscilla, they took him aside. And they taught him the way of God more accurately. They, they showed patience towards him. Uh, they showed gentleness towards him. You know, they didn't call him out on the spot, they, or, nor did they just let him keep doing what he was doing. But uh, they were seeking true unity uh, between Apollos and them uh, through the scriptures. And they took him aside and they taught him uh, the way of God more accurately. You know, that the, that the baptism of John was no longer in effect. And so we see uh, the great results of that, that the Paulus um, went on to start, you know, he, he learned the truth at that time. And then as we jump into verse 3, so, so we see that we need to walk in a manner worthy of what we've been called. We see the, the different characteristics that we need in our lives. And then he says in verse 3, be, being diligent, or maybe your translation says endeavoring or, or eager but the point is being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You know, I think verses one through three are some of the t- 
toughest, maybe most overlooked passages, um, possibly within the book of Ephesians. You know, when we are, are looking for true uh, unity between the brethren, again, it starts with us. Paul is starting with the individual, right? He's not telling us the rules that we need to, to necessarily follow, what we need to believe in, but he's telling us, okay, you need to, um, you need to you know, be humble, you need to be gentle, and you need to work at it. You need to be diligent at this. You need to endeavor to uh, preserve this unity. And so we're asked to value unity. We're asked to be attentive to it. And we're asked to invest energy in it so that, uh, so that it's not threatened. Uh, but then we jump into verses 4 through 6. And now he gets to the point of telling us those things that the Christian should be unified in. He says... There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So here are the seven ones. Now, we often refer to these as the seven ones of, of unity. So again, you know, devotion to the ideal of unity uh, cannot by itself provide the oneness that God desires, but we also... Uh, need to have these certain truths that serve as the basis for unity. Again, uh, the one body. Uh, what, what is the one body that he is speaking of? The church, right. He already told us in chapters 1, verses 22 and 23, uh, that, the, that his body uh, was the church. And, so, uh, and now he's telling us in Ephesians chapter 4 that there's only one body. Right? There's only one church. And then he goes on to say that uh, there's one spirit. Now, that, that word spirit there is capitalized. So that tells us that that is in reference to the Holy Spirit. Right? There's one Holy Spirit. And then he says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Well, what is that one hope? The gospel? Sorry? Going to heaven? Yeah, I was, I was going to go with um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. You know, the, the summation of the gospel, of course, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And because he lives, uh, because he defied uh, death, uh, or he was resurrected, you know, we have that hope. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote, Because of the hope laid up for you in uh, heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So we've got one body, we've got one spirit, we've got that one hope, which is heaven, and we submit to the one Lord, which of course is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and we believe and we defend the one faith, you know, uh, the one faith. This, is the, uh, this isn't my personal faith, but it's the faith, uh, the summation of the Christian system uh, that was that we are told in Jude chapter 3 that we should contend earnestly for the faith, that it's been once been handed down to us. It, it's now been completed uh, as of um, the first century. And so uh, there is one faith. Uh, that, uh, there's you know, not multiple faiths, but there is one faith, right? the Christian uh, faith. And then he says there's one baptism. Well, of course, you know, throughout Scripture, there are, uh, you know, we don't have time to go through all of them, but, you know, there are different types of baptisms that you can read about in Scripture. There's a baptism of fire, which is something that no one, you know, no one here wants to take part of that. 
Um, there's John's baptism for repentance, you know, but, but that one baptism that is now in effect, the only baptism that is in effect is the baptism of the Great Commission. Right? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all of the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that is that one uh, baptism. Here, Acts twenty two sixteen, when it said, now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Right? The one baptism that is now in effect is the baptism that washes away sins. That's for um, the forgiveness of our sins. And then he says, finally, uh, and one God, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So these seven ones uh, that we read about in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, is what provides us um, with the baseline right, for the Christian uh, belief system. And so to reject any one of these is to reject God's plan. And so this is, you know, these are the, uh, what we are to be unified around these seven ones. And again, we, we have all of these things in common. Um, which one of these, I guess, open up this question, but which one of these do you think is the hardest for the world uh, to understand or for the, 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 the individual that might classify themselves as a, as a Christian? The religious world. Uh, baptism? Maybe, I mean, because they want to sprinkle, they want to baptize. It's not part of the. You can baptize after you become a Christian God, or after you do, you know, whatever. It seems like that's the most moved around object, I guess, or, you know, it's not really the bank that's part of it, but it's when, and it's not necessary, sure. some, and everything. And it seemed like even back in the day, you know, they had John's baptism. Apollos and all this stuff, they struggle with that too, it seems like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There are multiple churches, and those churches don't consider themselves all in fellowship with one another. And if you talk to a person, their last line of defense is well, there are different strokes for different folks. What takes me or what makes me believe is this, this, and this. What makes me believe is this, this, and this. But the problem is, is when you get to the this, this, and this, you find contradictions in this. And Christianity was never intended to be real complex, real complicated. It's actually quite simple to understand. And, and yet... It's very complex for some because they go beyond what the scripture says or either they fall short and go in a different direction. Yes. Uh, yeah, so Eddie pointed out the one baptism. That was, that was my second choice, but uh, Mike hit on the head. What I was going to go for was the one body. Um, you know, if Jesus said he's going to build my church and the church is his body... Uh, why do uh, you know? Why are there so many different churches in the world? Why are there so many different denominations in the world? Because we're not all unified on that point uh, of the one body. Um, you know, one church over here teaches on one thing, and this church over here teaches on uh, something completely different about that same thing. Well, either um, one is right and one is wrong, 
or they're both wrong, but they both can't be right. And so, um, again, so Paul is giving us this baseline for the Christian, for those Christians in Ephesus, of, of the seven ones. And again, we could spend so much time on these, uh, but I want to try and get through the material with the time left that we had. Um, but again, as we, as we work our way through these verses about you know, being unified um, in Christ, um, it's very important to start with us. You know, in the first three verses, again, start with us. Um, let's walk worthy. Uh, let's have these attributes and let's work at it. And then here, verses four through six, these are the things that we are um, unified about. These, these ones, these seven ones. So let's look at verses seven through ten. Yes. Verses 7 through 10, Paul continues uh, on speaking about unity. He says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So I found those verses kind of be a little bit of a tongue twister as I've been studying them the past couple of days. But, you know, basically in short, uh, you know, what Paul is getting at uh, is that um, that Jesus Christ, uh, you know, he came to earth in the flesh. Uh, he, you know, he was crucified. He, he ascended back uh, and he gave uh, gifts to men, meaning, you know, he, he didn't expect us to, uh, you know, be told how to be unified, but then not uh, give us or, or, you know, give us some help in that arena, um, especially with the early church. And so, um, again, he says these, res- these gifts resulted in the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and he gave gifts to men. Now, uh, these gifts that we're going to read in uh, the next section aren't um, all of the gifts. Uh, I guess I would say all of the gifts because we can read of other ones elsewhere. Uh, but these are some of them that he's going to point out. And, 
And, and at this point, within Scripture, in the first century, these are going to be miraculous gifts. You know, obviously, when we think of miracles in the Bible, I always like, and I don't know if you've heard this analogy before, but I like to think of it as miracles are the equivalent of scaffolding to a building. Have you heard this analogy before? You know, when you're building a building, it's essential to have the scaffolding to, you know, help put the building together. But once that building is together, you know, you get rid of the scaffolding. It's no longer needed. You know, you put it aside. And the same thing uh, with the early church. As the early church was being built and developed uh, throughout, um, throughout the world, you know, the, the, the early Christians, they had, the, they had these miraculous uh, gifts uh, that, that helped to um, build up the church, uh, to, to help um, teach in the church. And so... As we see here in verses 11 through 16, you know, Paul is going to list some of these things. He says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All right, so there, there's so much there uh, to unpack, but um, after stressing uh, the basis of unity and, uh, and also, um, uh, you know, Jesus uh, giving us uh, this, uh, or giving them, uh, the Ephesians and other Christians within the first century, these, these various gifts, um, he, he starts to list some of these things, and he says he, he gave some of them as apostles. You know, as, as we think of uh, the word apostle, you know, of course, um, you know, we can think of it as an, in a, an official sense, you know, the 12 apostles. Uh, you know, maybe you think of it as capital A apostles, the, you know, the apostles. And then there are, you know, lowercase a apostles, uh, uh, Barnabas and James, the, the brother, half-brother of Jesus uh, in, in Scripture. They're referenced as apostles, even though they weren't part of the, the 12 the original 12, uh, but, uh, you know, Jesus was referred to as an apostle. Uh, Paul was referred to as an apostle, but, um, you know, just that term means to, one, to be sent forth, but to be sent forth uh, with a mission. And, and, of course, their mission was to preach uh, the gospel. And also, he mentions prophets. Um, you know, when we think of prophets, a lot of times we think of individuals who can tell the future, uh, but... That's not exactly what a prophet is. They're, they can also, uh, or more importantly, they're, they're speaking forth, uh, you know, a message from God. You know, not only do they, they, do they sometimes uh, predict the future, but they also, you know, they tell us what happened in the past, right? Moses was a prophet, and uh, he wrote Genesis 1-1. Well, how did he know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? How did he know all those things happened in the past? Because he was a prophet, and God used him as his spokesperson. Um, 
evangelists, you know, simply um, a proclaimer of the gospel. And then he says, uh, the last one, uh, a lot of times we put these together because um, it says, and some as pastors and teachers, you know, so we don't get that word some in front of teachers. And so this is probably talking about one group, uh, teaching pastors, uh, which would be in reference to shepherds, which would be in reference to elders, overseers, bishops. Um, and so in the early church, uh, as the church was being developed, you know, it was, it was um, developed by God in a way that these positions were miraculously um, created. Uh, you know, that he gave these gifts. He gave some to be apostles and, and uh, pastors and evangelists and, and prophets. But then he says in verse 13, the important part of that, this verse, he says, um, until, but these things until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Okay, so, so there was, a, these things were limited in time frame. Um, they were, again, they, they were the scaffolding. Um, you know, of, of course there are evangelists today. Of course there are pastors today, you know, elders. Uh, but in the non-miraculous sense. Uh, uh, and... Um, and he says there in verse 14, because of these things, because of these things that are now in place, we no longer have to be like children tossed here and there. You know, you, you talk to a child and you ask them a question, you know, do you want a peanut butter sandwich or a ham sandwich? Don't they usually always choose that last thing? I, that's, uh, you know, I've done that with my kids before. I'll ask them a series of questions, you know, and then I'll, then I'll change the arrangement. And ask them, would you rather have a ham sandwich, ham sandwich or a peanut butter sandwich? And they'll always answer that last thing. Right? Because they're children. They have the minds of children. Uh, you know, they'll believe, um, you know, usually whatever you say. And they drift. They're not anchored in their thinking. And, of course, this is what Paul says. We do not want the church uh, to be this way. And so, um, you know, he kind of ends this. Uh, in verses uh, 16 by saying that when we as the body, as the, when all the members are working together, when we are unified and working together, what's it going to cause? It's going to cause growth, right? The church is going to grow. It's going to be, uh, whether he's talking about um, spiritually or, or, or uh, numerically, the church is going to grow and we're going to build up each other um, as we, we seek uh, to be unified. Again, unity is something that we need to attain to, but we, it needs to start with us, as he says in the first three uh, verses. I appreciate your attention this evening and uh, the good comments and look forward to finishing out chapter four with you uh, next week. Thank you. Thank you.